I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. This podcast is called Battleground. It's called that because every day our lives are filled with battles large and small. If we want to live greatly, then we must confront those battles head on. Sometimes we win and that's great. Sometimes we lose and that's okay too. Because there are always, always lessons to be learned in a loss. You see, the key is never surrendering. Be relentless in the pursuit of what matters most to you in life. My next guest is the embodiment of that. His name is Joe Kent. He served 20 years in the United States Special Forces as a Green Beret. He worked with the CIA. Joe tragically lost his wife, Shannon Marie Kent, who was killed in Syria in 2019 in service to our great nation. Joe Kent has made his entire life about serving America. More recently, he ran for Congress in Washington State's 3rd Congressional District and is running again this 2024 election cycle. The truth is, Democrat, Republican, Independent, I don't care. We would all be extremely lucky to have Joe Kent in Washington, D.C., He understands the problems we face as a nation. He understands what it means to go to war for America. He understands what it means to lose his friends and people that he loves and cares about. Joe Kent has sacrificed so much for our country. Truthfully, he's overqualified for the job of representative, but lucky for us, he wants to do the job. He wants to represent and serve America once more. We should let him. So I will stop talking, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoy my conversation with former Green Beret and U.S. congressional candidate for Washington State's 3rd Congressional District, Joe Kent. Joe Kent, welcome to Battleground, man. It has been far too long. I watched your candidacy uh, last cycle. Um, I was... I paid close attention to it, man. I, I I love what you stand for and 20 years in the special forces and then some more time as a CIA guy. Uh, it seems like you've been serving your country your entire life, man. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I never uh, thought of it as a job. I thought of it as a calling and I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people I was around and, you know, just just like you, I'm sure I considered my uh, jump into the political realm unexpected, but also a continuation of service. Yeah, man. Mine was real unexpected. I was uh, I got this service dog charity that I just threw myself into after I got out. And, you know, I've been doing that for a decade and like wrote writing books and like writing fiction books. Like politics was always something that I was interested in that I paid attention to and I helped good candidates, I thought, and was involved at the local state federal level. Um, 
And then Trump came along and just called me out randomly in Western Pennsylvania. And I was like, I wasn't even there. Never met him. Never talked to him. Oh, but wow. the guy. <laughs> so that's that's how I got into this. This craziness is like a complete outsider. But you're an outsider, too. And yeah. I think with that, I mean, this is this is what I loved about this. Is what I love about you uh, and your candidacy is that you bring a perspective that many in Washington don't have, Joe. And if you look at the state of this country with, you know, what's happening on our southern border, tidal wave of human suffering. We just learned that the FBI was colluding with Twitter, spying like spying on the American people, censoring the American people um, with our own tax dollars. It seems like there's a war against law enforcement in this country. Our debt and deficit are soaring. Uh, it's I've never seen anything like it before in our country. It just seems like everything's going off the rails. W- what the hell do you make of all of this? Man, it's uh, I mean, it's just so broad and it seems like every day we learn more and more about how our government not just lies to us, but in many cases, most cases, it seems they're conspiring against the American people. They're making a mockery of everything that you and I fought for. Um, And so that's I mean, that's why I got into this, because I got just so absolutely frustrated. And since the Biden regime really took over, we have just seen this deliberate plan because I don't think it's incompetence. Biden does a very good job of being a goofy, senile old man slash corrupt politician. (laughs) And so it's easy to say on first pass, like, oh, this guy's just incompetent. However, if you just look at the, I mean, we're two years into this thing now. If you just look at what they've done, you mentioned the Southern border, what they've done to the economy, what they've done in the energy sector. I don't tell you, you're in Pennsylvania. I mean, the way that that's just hurting people every single day, stealing a month of their wages, like we are in the managed decline of our nation. And so I feel like this is from my, my Green Beret perspective, this is unconventional warfare being waged against the American people, the American sovereign nation state. Joe, you saw, and speaking of your Green Beret experience, 20 years, re- uh, retired, right? Retired special forces guy. Yep. Uh, what, like, what was the catalyst for you to join the military in the first place? You know, man, that's a really good question. I think as long as uh, little kids can can tell their parents what they want to be when they grow up, my answer was like G.I. Joe Commando something. Uh, I think you know G.I. <laughs> Joe cartoons and the A-Team definitely played a factor, but it uh, it's always what I wanted to do, which, you know, growing up, I grew up just across the river from where I am now uh, in Portland, Oregon, which most people would be like, oh my God, you grew up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so maybe some of it was like the easiest way to rebel in Portland, Oregon was to enlist in the military. So maybe there's some of that, but I, I always wanted to join the military. Uh, for me, 1993, the Black Hawk Down incident, the, the Battle of Mogadishu, that was sort of like a, a, a mini 9-11 for me because I think cable network news had just gotten real big. And so we were, that was the first like real brutal combat that I think was really just piped into everyone's living rooms. And I saw that and I was 13 years old at the time and I was really interested in the military. I was reading everything about, you know, mo- mostly Vietnam stories of Green Berets and SEALs and Rangers and all that. And so I kind of knew who was who. And I was like, man, these are really young guys. These guys are probably four or five years older than me that are out there engaged in this just absolutely savage combat, horrific scenes of Americans getting their bodies drugged through the street. And I said, like, who who are those guys? Can I go join them as soon as I graduate? And so I talked to the recruiters and they said, well, boy, if we got a deal for you, you can, you can go right (laughs) if you just sign your name right here. And so what did they they tell you? What did the recruiters tell you? 
I mean, at first they were just like, I mean, they were really excited that someone, I mean, because it's not an easy <laughs> Yeah, someone in deal. Portland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're used to having, I think, to roll out the whole like, hey, here's all the free college and you can go learn a language and all this other stuff. And I was like, hey, can I be an infantry airborne ranger? And, you know, they were like, get this kid a contract right now. Um, so at first they kind of tried to talk me out of it because I, I think some of my, uh, my, my recruiter is actually a really good guy. He was like a hospital service guy. And he was like, hey, do you know what you're, what you're asking for? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, right, here, here you go, man. Before you change your mind, let's uh, let's get you to sign this thing. They probably have a quota of one out in Portland. He probably hit his quota with you. Yeah, yeah. He probably got promoted <laughs> off the whole thing. You know? Yeah. Well, so, so okay. So you sign up. You said you want to go into the infantry. You want to go to airborne school. You want to go to ranger school. Do you, do you hit all those schools? Did you go to, did you go to basic at Fort Benning? Yeah, did the whole uh, enlisted as an eleven Bravo with a Ranger contract. So, did the uh, the Fort Benning one station unit training thing. Went to airborne school and then uh, Ranger indoctrination rip at the time. I think it's called RASP now. Did three years yeah. out at Second uh, Ranger Battalion, uh, Fort Lewis, and then went to Special Forces selection from there. So you actually got stationed in Washington at Fort Lewis with Second Rangers. I did. Yeah. I mean, as you know, there's not uh, the the army's funny because I don't think the army heavily recruits out of like the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest that much. So when I was in Ranger indoctrination in Fort Benning, Georgia, at the end of it, when they they said, hey, you you graduated, you made it, you're going to go to Ranger Regiment. Um, There's three battalions. You can stay here at Fort Benning or you can go to the beach, first Ranger Battalion, or you can go to some place called Fort Lewis, Washington, where it rains all the time. And so I I guess I just (laughs) lucked out and there was a bunch of kids in my class who were, I think there was two of us maybe that were from the west coast and so we got our number one draft pick while everybody else fought over going to the beach (laughs) so when you so you get stationed out of fort lewis did you deploy with the rangers so this is pre 9-11 so i did a lot of training it's a great it's like i I think ranger battalion is the best place in the in the army to grow up um, so no, I was there from 98 to 01 i was actually in special forces selection when the attacks 9-11 happened oh man what was that like it's pretty wild, man. I mean, I, uh, you know, I was an E4 and so I thought I knew everything. And so we were on like day two Part or three of, of selection. Mafia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm the smartest guy in the world. I've been in Ranger Battalion for, you know, and the, the cadre at that special forces selection, are, they're very stoic. Uh, it's kind of like the hallmark of that program. They don't yell at you like they do in Ranger School and all that. Um, and they came in to the classroom one day after we did a ruck or a run and they said, hey, uh, America's under attack. And, and you know, me kind of being a smart aleck, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, is there like a scenario for special forces selection like i thought we were just like you know rucking and stuff i didn't think there was some some form of a of a mind game and so they're, they're explaining what's happening and i'm like i don't know man this seems like it's part of the game and then they said hey if you're from washington dc or you're from new york city you need to go into one of these offices and call your family and i was like okay this is this is probably real um and then they, they let us watch the uh, they, they brought in tvs and they let us watch the news so we had an idea of what was happening but the course kept rolling and so every day or every couple of days when we were done, especially during land nav, uh, the instructors would bring out newspapers and they were just like, you guys don't understand what's going on here. You're here trying to get through this, but America has changed. And you're going to, you're going to, when you leave Camp McCall, you're going to enter an America that's drastically changed forever. You know, Joe, I was, um, yeah, I wasn't in the military at the time. I was a sophomore in college. And I think I woke up on 9-11 with a wicked hangover, never served anything <laughs> in my life, didn't even know what the hell I wanted to do with my life. And I remember seeing that and having any special military training. I remember being afraid. I also remember being 
really, really angry because having grown up I mean, grown up in the 80s and 90s, I never thought that anything like that could happen right. to our country. And even as I lived through that as, as a sophomore in college, there was an overwhelming sense of foreboding in me in that thinking to myself that America has changed forever. It, we're never going back. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny because I, I think maybe just from being in the, the army in the late 90s, I was actually kind of skeptical that we were going to strike back and even do anything because I came in in 98. I was in basic training when bin Laden and Al Qaeda hit the embassies in uh, Kenya and Tanzania. And then I was in battalion when uh, the coal was attacked. And so I got out and then especially we, uh, it's kind of funny, I, I got back from selection. Uh, my battalion was forward deployed on training and they read us that were on rear detachment. They read us the op order for objective Rhino for the jump into Afghanistan. And so we loaded up war pallets and we all thought we were going. And then within like a couple hours, we heard that third battalion, third ranger battalion was, was going to go do the <laughs> deed. And then we saw that like, I think a couple days later, we saw it on the news. And so for me coming out of the, the late nineties military, I was like, oh crap, man, that was it. I just, I missed the, the desert storm or I missed the Grenada or the Panama. Of, of my generation, um, which is funny to say now that we we just got done with 20 years of as much war as you wanted. But that was my like I, my initial thought. I know. I was just thinking that like, boy, were, boy, was the boy, were you wrong about that? Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I mean, not only did you come up during some of those crazy terrorist attacks, you lived and served in a post 9-11 America. And you, it seems like you were part of, and I know I was, the evolution of, of the army from a, a force that was largely structured to facing, you know, conventional threats, uh, Soviet Russia, to a transition to brigade combat teams and counterinsurgency. And that's what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq for 20 freaking years. And, you know, ha so, so, okay, so you're in, you're in SFAS, you graduate, you, what special forces team were you assigned to? So I went to fifth group. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to a dive team uh, right away. Awesome. Um, so yeah, really lucked out there. I actually went to pre-scuba when I was still in Ranger Battalion. So I kind of had that little leg up coming out of the Q course to get me on a dive team right away. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I was at the special forces course takes so long. I was a weapons guy. I didn't recycle and it was still, and I had a six month language. Um, so it was a year and a half and I missed the, the initial kickoff of the Iraq war. And so I was, I was certain I was like, dude, I just, I missed the jump into Afghanistan. I missed the ground <laughs> war. Like I'm a loser. I'm never going to combat. Um, but that was quickly over right when I got back to fifth, right when I got to fifth group and these guys had just gotten done, you know, these are the men on horseback in Afghanistan. They, they just did the ground invasion of Iraq. But right when I got there, my team sergeant was like, hey, this is not going to be done anytime soon. As a matter of fact, we're going back in a couple of months. Um, and we're, we're going to go after all these HVTs, but then we're also going to have to do probably some unconventional warfare, start standing up the new Iraqi military. So I, uh, as much as at the time I thought I had missed it, I got there at a, at a perfect time. What year did you end up going? I got there in, uh, in uh, 2003 and then deployed right afterwards. So by the summer of 03, I was over in Iraq. So when you were in Iraq in those early days, was your mission largely kinetic? Were you largely going after high value targets? 
Yeah, I, I had an amazing mix. Um, so my team that I went to, we were a direct action team. Um, that's because like the typical like special forces configuration, there's a company that specializes in direct action. Those guys got put on a reserve status for some reason. The CENTCOM commander, I don't know why, he wanted them to go sit, I think, somewhere in the Gulf. And so my team and another team got the last minute frago that, hey, you guys are kicking indoors uh, until otherwise notified, which was a good deal for me coming out of Ranger Battalion because I was like, <laughs> I actually, I, I can do that. <laughs> so, so cool. So yeah, we initially got assigned to go after the famous deck of cards. Um, and we did that for the first couple of months. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was flying over to Iraq, the team that we were going to replace, they went after the UN bombers. So Zarqawi's debut when he blew up the UN headquarters, I got there and, and literally the team that we're replacing, they lost two guys, tragically, Bill Bennett and uh, Kevin Moorhead. And they're, they're washing the blood out of the trucks they're handing to us as they, as they take off and head home. What was that like? It was wild. I mean, I was lucky because I had trained for combat for so long in Ranger Battalion, what felt like so long to me as a you know, 23 year old. Um, but I felt like I was, I was ready, but it was still pretty surreal. I mean, especially arriving, uh, and relieving a team that had just lost two very senior members in a very bloody gunfight. It was like, okay, this is, this is real. And we're going back out there and we're going to get our piece of this and we better be on our a game or, or they're going to get us. I mean, did you, did you get a sense that, the enemy had evolved to your tactics, techniques, and procedures almost immediately um, as you were operating. Did you have to evolve those as as the fight wore on? Yeah, we certainly did. 03 and 04, I think the uh, especially the the Iraqi insurgency, they really showed how adaptive they are. At first, I mean, th there was the old Saddam holdouts and there was some, you know, initial Al-Qaeda guys and it wasn't very organized. But in very short order, they realized that, hey, we don't want to stand and fight the Americans. However, these guys are driving everywhere because Iraq, you know, you can drive on, on the roads in Iraq. And so their IED game, I just remember watching that thing evolve. I mean, initially, some of the IEDs that we were facing um, they were they were just not very well shaped, and so they would just kind of blow up, and they wouldn't really hit anybody. We were lucky because we were using a lot of non-standard vehicles, so we would blend in with a lot of the Iraqi traffic. Um, and unfortunately, the conventional guys in the massive convoys they were they they seemed to be the testing bed for the Iraqi IED EFP machine. So watching them evolve in that, but then they also really uh, dangerously adapted to the way that we did our raids. They knew that we were aggressive, and we liked to go in and, and, and kick in doors and get after them. And it wasn't too long before they were luring us into into houses and then you know blowing up the house on us. So did that ever happen to you? That uh, never, luckily never happened to me. Um, we avoided it a couple of times because of really spot on intelligence because we knew what to look for. Um, but yeah, I lost friends that way, just going out. I mean, they were doing what we were trained to do, which is go be aggressive, you know, eliminate, dominate, control, get in there, you know, but the, the, the insurgents really adapted to that. So I lost two really good friends, uh, essentially in, you know, house born IEDs, we'd call them or a suicide bomber, just deliberately waiting to bait an assault force into a room to, to blow himself up. I mean, the, so I'm sitting here thinking, having had similar experiences in my life, you know, these are the experiences that shaped you as essentially a, a young American it lived through the Iraq war. When did you meet Shannon? We didn't meet until much later. So we met uh, initially for 10 minutes uh, in 2007 at the uh, at the embassy in Baghdad. Uh, and then I didn't see her again until 2013. So so. 
did she was she deploying at the same time, like in 2003, around the same time that, that you were and you were just deploying to the same areas of operation, but just never crossed paths? She uh, she joined the military in 03. And I'm like three or four years older than uh, she was. So she joined in 03. She was an Arabic linguist. So it took her a while to get through training and learn the Arabic language. Um, her first deployment, I think, was about 2007. I met her on her first deployment real briefly. I sat in on a briefing she was giving on, you know, where some bad guys were located. Um, but yeah, she, we were in the same areas. We were in Baghdad a lot at the same times together. Uh, we knew a lot of the same, same people um, throughout the years. That's that is crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Do you feel like now looking back, I mean, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Do you feel like your time in, in Iraq uh, or deployed all around the world, really, do you feel like it was worth it? I mean, for me personally, like I, I wouldn't have done anything different as a young man. Like our country was going to send somebody off to war. Um, I'm sure you probably feel the same way. Like if someone's going, like we're going, you know, I, um, I, however, I looking back, like it, objectively, when, when you step out and you say, was this worth it for America to spend, you know, I, I think $8 trillion and for us to lose, you know, probably about 8,000 lives and then just, just to have catastrophic results throughout the region, was it worth it? Absolutely not. I mean, this is why I'm so adamant that we have responsible, sober leadership in Washington, D.C., especially when it comes to how our nation uses force. And like, if are we going to go to war? What is the actual goal? I, I don't know how you feel. But when when I was over there, I had even as a very young guy, I, I remember on my first deployment, we, we did the kinetic direct action thing for a while. And then we got tasked with uh, standing up the Iraqi military. And so we took a bunch of the anti-Saddam militias and we, we essentially demobilized them and, and formed them into one force. The Kurds were kind of the backbone of that. But I, but I remember demobilizing some of the Shia militias and these guys had blatant ties to Iran. And I was like, man, this doesn't seem like the greatest idea. And then we heard that Paul Brimmer put out CPA order one and he fired all the Sunnis. Basically, he said, if you had anything to do with the bath party, you're fired. You can never work again. And I remember like my team talking about this and my my captain at the time, who was the most senior guy, he sent up a report that was like, we think this is a terrible idea. Uh, just common sense wise, if you fired all of us back home, you know, and that's kind of a dangerous thing to do. Um, but, you know, at the time in the back of my head, I was like, you know, I bet there's some generals or there's some like CIA guys that have like a plan that just doesn't make sense to 23 year old Sergeant Kent down here. <laughs> yeah. so I'm, yeah. I'm just I'm going to do my thing. And, and, you know, the more I tried to do that as the years went on, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like we need sober leadership in Washington, D.C. I need someone to come explain to me what the actual goal is here. And that's that's the thing that drives me crazy about the wars. And I, by the way, I agree with you. I, I look back at my time uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, I wasn't a, a special forces guy. I didn't have multiple deployments, just one really, really long, horrible yeah. deployment. And that was enough for me. I was, uh, and the crazy thing about it, Joe, is I intended to go in and make it a career. And I, my path was I wanted to be a young light infantry lieutenant. I wanted to go to um, uh, special forces assessment and selection, uh, be a special forces guy, do all that stuff. I got I, a year and a half, 16 months of combat. I was like, yeah, well, my nine lives are up. I, I got to find something else to do. Uh, and the reality was, Joe, is I felt like I came back from Afghanistan. It was just, I mean, one direct fire after the next. It just, it was emotionally, physically exhausting. And I, I remember talking to my commander about it and just said, I just can't do it. I, I don't think that I have what it takes anymore to lead. You know, I had gotten back home. I had had a taste of what being home meant, and I just didn't think I could ever go back. And so that's why guys like you never cease to amaze me because you did. 
you did go back and you went back multiple times. And the fact of the matter is, is that a very small percentage of Americans, like what is it, 0.4%, less than half of 1%, have served this country during the longest period of war in our nation's history. Yeah. And and that's half of 1% bore a very, very heavy burden and you know sacrificed for this country in ways of which most Americans can never fully and truly understand. And in looking back on the the war and the fight am i proud of my service absolutely i volunteered to do it i would do it again in a heartbeat this i am not a victim of my service in any way i i loved it um but it, and we did lots of great things in afghanistan taught little girls how to read great lots of humanitarian assistance you know built wells and schools and killed lots of bad guys too um but how could we possibly say that our time in afghanistan was was well spent after 20 plus years after the withdrawal that we saw last year. I mean, to your point, to your point, oh, there's got to be some somebody that's way smarter than me, some general somewhere that had that, that's thinking about all this stuff. I'm just going to focus on kicking doors. But I know that there's somebody out there right. thinking about this stuff. But clearly they weren't. They weren't. No, they weren't. I mean, that was for me. I I, I always kind of wondered my, you know, I, I wondered why we we fired all the Sunnis in Iraq, but I also thought it was weird that we kept building these bigger bases. I remember thinking in 03 and 04, because my our team house was, you know, fairly austere. We weren't like building it out constantly. We worried about security. But I looked at like all the mega fobs, the forward operating bases and the garrisons that we were building there. And I was like, hmm, that's really weird. Like what's going on here? I thought we were just going to get in, take out Saddam, give the Iraqis their freedom <laughs> and kind of get out of here. Like what do we, what do, and the same thing in Afghanistan, like what are we doing here? And after a while I was like, oh, wait a sec. The only place where there's any kind of plan is to stay and to always apply more and more and more and more and more. And that to me, after a while, that seemed to be the only consistent theme. The consistent theme was continue to pour more resources into these places. Don't worry about what we, the people, what America is getting back in return. And I just, exactly. I, I just found that absolutely disgraceful. And, you know, we, uh, we saw it all come imploding the way that we left Afghanistan. We kind of got off exactly easy. Right. Uh, we got a little bit lucky in Iraq, I think, as far as politically, because the the uh, the surge, I don't, I, I could go on about the surge for quite a while, but the Iraqis had kind of in their civil war had really kind of worn each other out. But the Shias with Iran, they had gained such an advantage that they let us just sort of leave without a bloody nose in 2011. Now we all watched it implode a couple years later and we had to come right. riding back in to save this guy government that didn't really even exist because they all surrendered their weapons to ISIS. We had to come back and we're still over there. And then we just watched Afghanistan implode. And it's like, we're still trusting the exact same cadre of people in Washington, D.C. to regulate foreign policy. And now they're telling us that, hey, we need to go provoke Russia in Ukraine. And like, it's just, it's, it's kind of like, when does the madness actually end? Oh, I mean, look, so, you, first, so you're absolutely right. Uh, let me talk about the surge for a second here. Yeah. So so just to give you a perspective of what was happening for me, like I was in Afghanistan in 2006 to 2000. We were supposed to go home in January 2007. Yeah. The surge happened. Uh, we actually were replaced. I had many of my soldiers in various stages of redeployment. So I ended up being the last guy with my platoon sergeant on the base in Afghanistan uh, for the RIP, the relief in place of the 82nd Airborne who were coming in to, to replace us and and regional command east and and Burmel, Afghanistan and Fab Burmel. And two days before we were supposed to come home, we got extended out of nowhere. And again, my men had already deployed home. They had already linked up with their 
with their spouses, their children, reunited with families. And we got, hey, four, four months or until mission complete. And of course, the private mafia, <laughs> they get they see the until mission complete and they're like, oh, God, we're going to be here forever. They're going to leave us here for a year. And I have to admit, as a young first lieutenant who really didn't know a whole hell of a lot about the military, I, I started thinking like, well, the until mission complete thing is kind of scary. <laughs> and, and come to find out later, come to find out later. So we did have to stay for four months and we had to go through a whole nother spring offensive and ended up being there for 16 months um, wow. in, in, in RC East Afghanistan. But I say that to say like they, there was simply no one to replace us because they had sent all of our replacements to Iraq in yeah, support right, of the yeah. surge. And, and I mean, literally we did not have the troops to replace us in Afghanistan. So <laughs> to, <laughs> to your point, no one's thinking about this stuff, man. And like you look at what's happening. We, we still have Americans on the ground in Afghanistan right now that are probably trapped, can't get out. Yet the the the, the, the war, these these warmongers in Washington, these politicians who who think about sending America's sons and daughters into the fight first without thinking of, you know, the consequences of what that will look like, what the mission is, uh, what the end state is, what does victory look like, how is victory defined, when do we leave, and what does that look like for America, or even just the overall question, Joe, of is this in America's best interest? Does this actually protect us? And you talked about Ukraine. This is what obsesses, like, here we are, already ready to transition to another fight, another war, only this time it's in, it's in many ways, it's, it's, it's vastly different than Iraq and Afghanistan, but similar in a lot of ways too. But you add to the fact that Russia is a nuclear power. Um, the Bidens have this weird, strange relationship with Ukraine. It, it frankly feels like a money, money laundering operation. And we're just coming off 20 years of war. And it feels like to me, Joe, that we're just making the same mistakes, rushing headlong into the fight without actually thinking it through. And, and, and so, Joe, this is like getting to this is why it's so important for guys like you to run. You know, it's it's why it's so important for guys who have seen the horror of war up close and personal and sacrificed to, to get in office and help make these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with Congress. I mean, I, I think over the, the global war on terror, Congress did a very terrible job of providing any kind of oversight or really even following the Constitution. Yeah, there was the initial authorization authorization use of military forces at the very beginning. But then we just let the war on terror expand to include, you know, expanding back here at home with the, the Patriot Act. But just exactly. we, we would continue to let the president choose a new war and use the same old tired authorization use of military force and not make the president come to the table and say, hey, guys, this is why we need to go to Libya. This is why we need to go to right. Syria. Do, do you agree? How do your constituents feel about it? Congress, the, the, I mean, the founders were geniuses. The founders didn't want the executive branch to have control over war. They wanted the representatives to go back and say, hey, are you guys in for this? Are you going to send your sons and daughters? Are you going to send your taxpayer dollars over to country X to fight a war? And we're not doing that. We're not learning from the last 20 years. And like you said, we got out of Afghanistan in a disastrous way in August of 21. And within 
a month or two, we were being told that, hey, like things are getting bad over in Ukraine. Like we really need to pay attention to that. And then sure enough, you know, Russia tragically invades Ukraine and the exact same tired lines to justify war escalation are being used. Like this is an existential threat to the whole world. If you're not if you're not with the war party, then you're with Putin. If you're, you know, It's the exact same thing exactly. they were saying in the lead up to the Iraq war. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. It's like we got to have some pattern recognition and say, hey, the last time Washington, D.C. came to us and just told us to blindly sign off on the checks, what happened? I mean, it, it's a very Absolutely. fair question for people to ask. And this is where I think we need representatives. And to include, I, I know I, I have some friends that are Republicans that say, hey, we do need to be all in, you know, standing up to Putin. That's fine. Let's have that debate on the floor of Absolutely Congress. Let's right. go back and have to stand in town halls before our people and say, like, how do you guys feel about this right now with the state of our country with us going over there? And potentially, like you said, I mean, yeah, it's a war. It's a fight. We're, we're kind of doing it through proxies. But if things go wrong, it's not going to be just an Afghan collapse. It's not going to be ISIS rolling across the berm and taking back, you know, over Iraq. This isn't the Middle East. This is Europe. This is a nuclear power. We haven't dealt with this since the Cold War. It's very dangerous. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, first of all, the, that debate on the House floor about about the conflict and how, you know, whether or not America should fight it in the first place and what the mission is and all of that. The American people deserve that dialogue. And I don't care what political party you're in, Republican, Democrat, independent, other. I don't care if we're going to send America's sons and daughters to go fight, bleed and die in a fight. And then, by the way, come home and struggle, because as you and I both know, the war doesn't end when you're over there. And when you come home, Um, there are longstanding consequences to sending our citizens to fight. And, And the American people deserve that debate. And it's you. You have all you understand because you've been. You've seen the horrors of war personally. And Joe, you lost your spouse, Shannon, who who also volunteered to serve this country after 9-11, loved this country. You celebrate her legacy all the time. But you you lost her as part of this fight. And I I know for me, you know, when I came back from Afghanistan, I was wounded, and so I began the medical retirement process, but they made me the rear detachment commander. Um, of Second Battalion, 87th Infantry Regiment, and it was it was by far a hundred times worse than combat because I had to take oh, yeah. care of wounded guys coming home. I had to train up young soldiers to go over there, and I also had to be that knock on the door when families lost loved ones, and it was the worst. It was it was it was an extraordinarily tough job. But Joe, you you lived through that too. You've seen both sides of this fight. I, it, what was help? The people that are watching this understand, you know, what that knock on the door was like for you. Yeah, I kind of had a uh, unconventional uh, knock on the door. I I was actually deployed at the same time. I wasn't. Shannon was deployed to Syria. Um, I was on a shorter trip over to uh, to Africa. Um, I had retired from the military. I was in the CIA at the time. Um, but I actually had been out, you know, doing some stuff that day. I came back and a good friend of mine who I was in special forces with, and he had made the transition over to the CIA as well. He said, Hey, I need to talk to you. Um, and he kind of like had everybody leave the room. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't know what it was about. And he said, Hey, I'm just going to tell you exactly what I know right now. And we, there was a suicide bomber in Mandage, Syria, and there's two U S females that are, that are killed in action. Um, and so we don't know their names yet. And I was like, okay, well, I knew Shannon was in Manbidge and there's not a lot of women in this occupation. Um, so I spent the next couple hours just trying to get a hold of her. 
Um, but by, you know, by the time I, I realized that she wasn't answering, we had confirmation that she was, you know, killed in action. Um, so then I, uh, unfortunately I had to make some really hard phone calls. I had to, I wanted to tell her parents before the Navy drove somebody out to knock on, on their door as well. Um, so I called Shannon's mom to let her know, um, what, what, what happened and what was about to happen that, that Shannon had been killed and that someone was going to come and knock on her door and formally tell her. Um, and then from there it was a, uh, I got a, got on an airplane the next morning and, and flew home so that I could be at Dover in time to, to receive her remains. Joe, what was that like to have to have that conversation with her parents? Hard. Uh, it, it's, uh, I mean, I was still processing what happened. I think, um, just the, the, the training and the conditioning of having to deal with casualties for uh, at that point, you know, almost 20 years. Um, kind of took over. And so I, I really didn't process a lot of it until days later. Um, but it was very difficult. I knew I, I remember sitting there like looking at my phone. And I'm like, OK, I can call her and I can tell her over the phone, which is probably one of the worst ways she can find out about this. Or she can get blindsided by they, they live kind of out in rural New York, uh, New York State. I'm like, or whatever. Navy guy gets tasked to drive from, I don't know, New York City, from Albany out there to go knock on her door is going to be a stranger is going to have to tell her. And so for me, I was like, it's it's best that I I give her a call and let her know uh, personally. But, yeah, it was it was probably the hardest phone call I've, I've, I'll ever have to make. I can't imagine, Joe, and I'm sorry that you even had to make it. Uh, how how'd your um, I mean, of course, how, how have your children been been able to process this yeah it's it's uh it's hard i mean they were one in three when she, they're five and seven now they were one in three when she was killed so um you know i came home and i, I actually talked to uh some child psychologists some grief specialists just, just to get advice because i didn't the only training i had was how to tell you know a, a soldier or a spouse you know like that their loved one had been killed um i had no idea how to deliver that news really to my kids and you know they gave me some pretty good advice about just hey kids um, they, there's not a lot left for innuendo of children. So you actually have to be pretty blunt with them. And so I, you know, I just had to tell them that, you know, their mom was killed and she's not coming home, which, you know, they, they didn't, obviously they were one in three, the one-year-old especially didn't, he couldn't fully process any of that. The three-year-old, he, you know, he, he didn't quite understand that either. So we're, we, we kind of go through that, you know, sort of continuously that she's, she's still with us. She's in heaven. She loves us. She can see us. You're going to see her again. Um, but she's not here. And so I think that they, now that they're getting older, they understand the, the permanence of death in, in a way that I think most adults don't fully understand until they're, until they're much older. Joe, I, uh, you've just been through so much, you know, serving this country and losing your spouse, uh, in support of, of this great country and in the service of that, this great country and lost friends obviously over 20 years of war. So why serve again? Why, yeah, why I mean, run that, for Congress? Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the question. I mean, I, uh, I thought once uh, I was out of the military, once I was out of the, the CIA after Shannon was killed, that, that was I was going to need to take a, a really, really long pause um, and just really focus on the kids. So I, I was living, we were living on the East Coast in the D.C. area. I moved back here to the Pacific Northwest, and I kind of thought that'd be it. Um, I had an opportunity to meet President Trump at Dover, um, and I was a, a pretty 
early supporter of President Trump because of his foreign policy stances. He won me over when he went after the Republican establishment. Because after Bush and Obama, I was like, man, the, the uniparty is a very real thing and it doesn't really matter I agree. if you're Republican or Democrat. And I didn't- with you. Yeah. And I, I didn't know anything about Trump other than like he was on a TV show or whatever. Um, and so I didn't take him very seriously until the debates. And when he went after Jeb Bush and he went after the Iraq war, I was like, I'm voting for this guy. He's got me 100 percent. And then deploying uh, with him as commander in chief. And so and, and you know, that for folks who don't know, Shannon was killed a month after Trump attempted to get our troops out of Syria the first time. So we, we met our mission objective. That's the stated objective of our troops being in Syria was to eliminate the Islamic Caliphate. We took out the last scrap of ground that ISIS controlled in December of 2018. And that's when Trump famously, you know, he, he tweeted it, but he also put out orders saying, we're getting our troops out of Syria because he ran on this. He was like, hey, I'm going to crush ISIS, but then we're not staying. We're getting out of the Middle East. And that's when Secretary of Defense Mattis, Brett McGurk and State Department did their public resignations. And I was talking with Shannon this entire time. They had orders to be out of Syria um, by Christmas Eve of 18. They were going to fly to Rabiel, Iraq, a much safer location and kind of start to retrograde from there. However, I, I was very skeptical. I was like the, the machinery, the apparatus, they're going to do everything they can to have us stay in Syria and expand the war. And sure enough, you know, uh, that, that date came and went. And then a month later, they were in Syria out there in harm. Look, Syria is, that part of Syria is probably always going to be dangerous. And so they were out there, I think, doing a mission they didn't need to be doing. They were they were doing their duty as soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines, um, and they were they were killed doing it. And so had the uh, unelected bureaucrats actually listened to President Trump, my wife and the three other Americans that she was killed with, she was killed with three other Americans uh, that day, John Farmer, a Green Beret, father of four, Scott Wirtz, a former Navy SEAL, Gadir Ta, Syrian American, like these, that's four lives that were absolutely unnecessarily lost had Trump's orders been followed. And so when I got the opportunity to meet Trump at Dover, I just said, hey, look, you, you, Mr. President, I appreciate you being here. You don't know me, but I've been fighting these wars for 20 years. You're getting it right, but you're being undermined at this, the mid to senior levels in ways that I've never seen before. And I just want you to know that your gut instincts are right. And we appreciate what you're doing, but don't trust the people around you. Um, and that what was kind of the beginning of- What did President Trump say to you? You know, he's, uh, he, you, you've, you've met with President Trump and he, he, he yeah. kind of, he looked at me and, and, and he was like, what do you do again? And I told him, I was like, hey, I'm, you know, I work over at the CIA, I'm working at the CIA, but I'm resigning. I was a Green Beret for, for 20 plus years. And he just kind of nodded his head. I mean, he was very, very compassionate. He had done research on Shannon. He knew who she was. Um, and then his folks reached back out to me. Trump's national security team reached out to me. Um, about two weeks later. And they said, hey, we don't know exactly what you said to the boss, but he wants to hear more. Will you come back out and talk with us? And I said, yeah. I mean, if you guys want to hear what I have to say, sure. Um, absolutely. And so I, I kind of started a relationship with the Trump administration, got to speak uh, quite a bit of Jared Kushner uh, about foreign policy. Um, and so I, I was going to go back and work in a second Trump admin, worked a little bit on the Trump campaign. Um, so my, my, my view at the time was like, Hey, if these guys think I can be value added and they're trying to do things differently, I'm all in, I'll, I'll do whatever I can. Um, and then obviously the, the 2020 election went the way, went the way that it did. Um, and then the district that I was living in, we had the whole Antifa thing, the rioting going on. It just seemed like the world was imploding COVID lockdowns. And so I was like, I'm going to step forward and, and, and try and provide some leadership right now. Cause for me, it's like the bar, the stakes are too high. My family, my kids have already lost so much that if we lose the country in this process, I'm not going to be able to look my kids in the eye and say like, Hey, America used to be pretty great, but then we all kind of got tired. <laughs> 
<laughs> and we stop fighting for it and, and we let these people take over. So we're not going down without a fight. And I think the country is 100% still, we're, we're the last salvation for humanity. And so we have to continue this fight. That's the way I look at it. There's nowhere else to go. Nowhere Joe. else to go. Yeah. Like free, freedom's last stand has to happen here. And, yeah. you know, what I admired about President Trump is is his ability to resist Washington groupthink. Yeah. And it amazes me when you're in that town how people on either side of the aisle, the unit party is really a thing. And you hear people talk about the deep state and whatever, but there are unelected bureaucrats that especially during President Trump's administration, who worked at every every step of the way, worked at every step of the way to to undermine his agenda, yeah. you know, and that's why this country needs people like you, Joe, and the really. And when you stood back up to, to run again, obviously, 2022, uh, was a tough cycle. I know what it's like to lose a, a, a congressional campaign, lo- lose a congressional campaign with air, air quotes, uh, because, you know, the reality is our elections in this country are a disaster. Um, and I don't care how much media pressure is, is on me or, or I've received for talking about stuff like this. But the reality is when you have mail-in ballots with no date, no signature verification can be dropped off in a Dropbox. Um, you don't know the person that is who's actually casting that vote is that person. You just don't know. Um, that's why the the Carter administration said, "Hey, wait a second, mail in ballots aren't secure." That's why the New York Times in 2012 said, "Hey, mail in ballots and you know probably aren't the best thing in the world for election integrity or security." And that's why almost all of Europe banned mail in ballots. So, but that notwithstanding, Joe, the fact that you're back in the fight is is inspirational to me. And I know it's inspirational to a lot of people, Joe, and this country, you know, I know when people watch this, they, they've got to give money to your campaign. They've got where, where can people find you? Where can people give money to support your race? Yeah, Joe Kent for Congress, forcongress.com is the place to do that. That's where you can take donations. There's links to all my social media on there. So Joe Kent for Congress. And, and let me let me explain something Rep- the, the, to the people that are watching, not not to you, Joe, because you know this, you've already run a campaign, but fundraising is at, is critically important. And I think having run two campaigns myself, there are a lot of people on our side of the aisle that don't understand how it works. And if you're a federal candidate and you're running for Congress, you can take max contributions. I think it's twenty nine hundred dollars for the primary and the general yep. double that for a married couple. Right. But right. you look at how much money some of these races cost, like in the state of Pennsylvania, for example, you saw how many tens of millions of dollars are spent on a statewide race. And for a, for a run in Congress, you need several million dollars to run a successful campaign, especially in a battleground district like yours, Joe. So there are only so many people who can swing a twenty nine hundred dollar campaign contribution for the primary and the general. So the life I mean, of course, any any and every candidate needs as many of those as humanly possible. But the lifeblood of campaigns are small dollar donors and not just small dollar donors, but the people who say, I'm going to give Joe Kent five bucks a month for the next 12 months. Now you get, you know, 500,000 people from all across the country doing that. Now you're talking. And that's how the Democrats fundraise. And that's how Republicans need to start thinking about fundraising is giving money directly to candidates like you. Um, 
I mean, obviously giving money to the party is important because you want them to be able to defend candidates and incumbents and all that stuff. But money is always best spent when it goes directly to the candidate who, in your case, is running for Congress in Washington three and uh, Washington's third congressional district. Um or you can spend that money. You know your constituents. You know it's important. You can message to them and make the case to them. But in order to do that, you need fundraising dollars. And I always liken it to the fundraising dollars are like bullets in your gun and yeah. in combat. You run out of ammo when you're surrounded by the enemy and getting attacked. You can't fight back. You die. Well, if you run out of fundraising dollars here in this country, when you're running a campaign, you're going to get attacked relentlessly because the left never wants for fundraising dollars. And they'll just pound you on TV and make up lies about you. And people like you, Joe, won't be able to respond. Yeah, I mean, with the exception of like podcasts like yours, Tucker Carlson and a few others, we have to basically pay for all of our media, whereas the Democrats have the New York Times, they have the corporate media, their fundraising mechanisms are very, very efficient. Uh, We raised $3 million uh, last cycle, and I'm grateful for all my max uh, donors. However, we we raised the vast majority of that off of, uh, like you said, the small dollar donors. Raised $3 million, our average contribution averaged out, even with the max donors, to be about $50. Which is pretty amazing when you when you, you think of it. And we went from zero to, to three million to actually have our to actually be able to take out a twelve year incumbent. That's the way that you have to do it, Joe. And you're an inspirational candidate. And I know that you know President Trump supports you and loves you. And really, to me, you're once in a generation type of candidate who 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 ha- you've seen combat. You know what that's like. You've lost loved ones. You've lost friends. This country needs people like you in in Congress. And so, man, I, I appreciate you joining me. I don't want to keep you for too long. I could talk to you for hours, man, but you are welcome to come back on this show anytime. And you. you don't need my support, but I'm going to do everything that I can I to help you because that. we need guys like you to win. No, I really appreciate it, man. Getting the the endorsement from my fellow war fighters. I really appreciate it. And I, I got to say <laughs> something else, man. You're very humble about your service as most regular army guys are. However, when I talk about all the tours I did, my tours were somewhere between six months my longest one was about eight months. You guys that say like, oh, I just did one tour that were over there for 16 <laughs> months. You, you guys are always way too humble about that. So it's always good to caveat what tours really are. So you 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 did uh, more than your fair share. And I'd love to see you in office somewhere. But I appreciate you having me on, man. I really do. Well, thanks, brother. You know what I'm going to do? I might just start mailing ballots to Afghanistan. I said, sir, I was over there for so long. <laughs> and I probably <laughs> legally do that, you know. And um, oh, but that's right. Afghanistan doesn't allow mail-in ballots because... They're not secure. But um, anyway, Joe, thank you for for joining, man. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, God bless you. And and God bless your campaign and your family and your kids. And, you know, God bless this great country that we get to call home. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Okay, everyone. That is a wrap. Joe Kent is the man. If you liked what you heard from him, you should consider contributing directly to his campaign. That is by far the best way you all can support him in his run for Congress. And in the meantime, subscribe to Battleground Podcasts, leave reviews, check out my brand new website, officialseanparnell.com, and check out the brand new Battleground Apparel. Also, also, keep an eye out for the Battleground newsletter. We have so much cool stuff coming. Don't miss any of it. I want you on this journey. Let's save America together. And as always, thank you so much for standing with me. God bless you all. And may God bless 
this exceptional nation that we live in. Take care. Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.